Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bienvenidos a la serie de sermones de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Check it out. God bless you. Good morning, church. Uh, Before I begin, I wanted to um, especially welcome home uh, Chris and Marla's book, and Trevor Brooks here as well this morning. They've just returned recently from Zambia, and we're thrilled to have you home. And uh, as well, I'd like to welcome uh, friends of mine, uh, Notsen and To. Oh, I can't do it. I can't get that click, Nube, but it has a click. Um, Oh, I can do it when I'm not in front of people. Anyhow, my friends from Zimbabwe, uh, they live in Mount Joy. They're here for a number of years, and we're privileged to have you worship with us today. I'm glad you're here. So there are two passages in Paul's letters which paint for us an illustration of the church using imagery of the body. They're familiar passages to us. The first is found in Romans 12, and the second is in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll be reading first Romans 12, verses 3 through 5. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And then 1 Corinthians 12 Verses 12 through 27. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are 
treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We thank you, Lord, this morning for this part of your word, for this picture of the body of Christ that we have the privilege of being part of. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to our hearts through your word this morning, uh, the things that you want us to hear, the things that you want us to know, the things that you want us to do. Lord, we, we lay ourselves before you. We open ourselves to the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part. In Christ, though many, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I recently purchased a copy of the African Bible Commentary. It's a one-volume commentary. Are you familiar with it? It's a one-volume commentary written by 70 African um, scholars. About this passage in Corinthians, it says, The different parts of a body all need each other, just as individual Christians need one another. This point is well made by the African proverb, the left hand washes the right and the right hand washes the left. Even those parts that seem weak are indispensable and are treated with special honor. God's design requires that the different parts of both the physical body and the church be concerned for one another. For as the African proverb puts it, one hand cannot lift a heavy load. In verse 27, when Paul tells the divided Corinthians that they are the body of Christ, the you in this verse is emphatic. The Greek word used here for you is the same word that is used in verses like Matthew 16:15, when Jesus said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? So Paul emphasizes you are the body of Christ. And then he underlines it. Each one of you is a part of it. It's both comforting and challenging to think about this truth, that we are all part of the body of Christ and that each one of us in the body of Christ belongs to all the others. There's certainly many applications of this truth in our lives and in our church, but today I'd like to focus on just one of them. Let's think for just a moment about who makes up the body of Christ. I'm guessing that when most of us think about the body of Christ, we think about our peers, our friends in the faith, those we gather in studies with, those we may pray with. I guess even further that most of us think about the body of Christ in terms of adults, that adults make up the many parts of the body. Interestingly, however, the body of Christ is made up of many young people also. Within the Christian church in America, two-thirds of believers have made their commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. Let's test this premise. Raise your hand if you made a commitment to Christ before you turned 18 and became an adult. Yeah, I think the premise is about right. We don't have the same divisions that the early church had. We don't have Jew and Greek, slave and free, but we do have divisions all kinds of them, racial, socioeconomic, 
educational, and even age divisions. So I invite you to close your eyes for just a moment, and let's listen to God's word one more time. And as I read the parts of 1 Corinthians once again, picture in your mind both younger and older people making up the body of Christ. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, young or old. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Don't forget to open your eyes again. Now you, both young and old, are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a necessary part of that body, having equal concern for one another. And young and old alike cannot say to one another, I have no need of you. I served as a youth pastor for many years, for 14 of them to be exact. So I care deeply about youth and about the church's ministry to them, even though I'm not directly involved with our youth ministry here. Craig and I also have two sons, one who's now a young adult and the other who's approaching the end of his teenage years with just one more year of high school to go. So I care even more about youth and about the church's ministry to them, seeing its impact on those I love. And I was also a teenager once. It was a very long time ago. (laughs) Corey um, is learning to drive currently and And we were driving the other day, I was driving, and I did something that he didn't think was quite right, and he told me about it. And then we were talking about the fact that Craig and I got our driver's licenses 40 years ago. Even though it was a long time ago, and life is quite different today. Like when I was a teenager, eight-track players were the rage. Um, Life is quite different today. But many of the needs of adolescents are still very much the same. The young people among us are an integral part of the body of Christ, and God God cares us to call, oh, I can't say that. God calls us to care for one another. While it's easy to think that Pastor Hank and a few select volunteers within the church are called to youth ministry here, I believe that every one of us is called to youth ministry in some way. We can't say to that part of the body, we have no need of them. 
As I was praying about this message for today, late one night a couple weeks ago, God gave me six words. He spoke six words to my heart in a relatively short time. Uh, Knowing that my memory is pretty much like a sieve, I wrote them down as quickly as I could before they escaped. Each of these words begins with the letter P. I don't often do sermons that have uh, alliteration. Pastor Hank is in Wisconsin this weekend and uh, for his mother's wedding, and he and I were texting on Friday evening a little bit about the message, and we concluded that perhaps God likes allit- alliteration. We'll see. <laughs> so the first uh, P word is the word prayer. The greatest gift that we can give to anyone is to regularly, faithfully pray for them. What difference might it make in the life of a teenager to have someone praying for them? Uh, There's an outline that I like to use when I'm praying, especially for young people, and it's an outline of the word bless. The B stands for bodies. Pray that they would be healthy and safe and use their bodies as instruments of righteousness, as the scriptures say. The L stands for labor. Pray for them as they work, as they do their schoolwork and their summer jobs, and as they help out at home, or hopefully help out at home. (laughs) The letter E stands for emotions. Pray for their emotional health as they go through the changes and decisions of adolescence. There is no more rocky time in life. The first S stands for social life. Pray for their time with their friends, for their choice of friends, for their choice of activities. And then the second S, pray for their spiritual life. Pray for them to experience the love of Christ in their lives, to know him, to follow him closely. It's a great outline to use in praying, especially for young people, but really for anybody. Have you ever considered asking Pastor Hank, for a list of the teens who come to our church on Sundays and Wednesdays so that you could be praying for them. We're currently seeking for our next youth pastor. This should be a matter of prayer for all the church. We especially need someone who will be gifted both in working with young people and in cross-cultural ministry. That's not an easy find. The prayers of the church are vital in this search. When I think of my own turbulent teen years, I'm amazed that I made it through them and that they ended with a deep commitment of my life to Christ. I'm thankful that I had caring people in my life who prayed for me. That's a gift we can all give to the young people in this church and in this community. The second P is the word perspective. Teenagers can be overwhelming and intimidating, especially when together as a group. Have you ever noticed that most adults stay far away from groups of teenagers? One teenager wrote about this experience. He said, loud, obnoxious, rebellious, out of control, and up to no good. These are just a few of a wide number of stereotypes that are attributed to American teenagers. What is it about teenagers that make the rest of society seem to turn against them? I believe that there are many misconceptions about teenagers. Many people in different generations sincerely believe that all teenagers are up to no good. 
and are guaranteed trouble no matter where they are. I'm not arguing that teenagers like that don't exist because there are plenty of them out there, but it bothers me that one type of teenager has been able to spoil the image of all other teenagers. Personally, I, he goes on, I think that these stereotypes apply more to me because I am a male. In addition to being a male teenager, I also have noticed that people think negatively of me because I wear a longer hairstyle than what is typically expected in society. Some people grow long hair to show rebellion or to be unique, but I wouldn't classify myself into either of those categories. I simply enjoy having it more than short hair. But because of that, many members of society link certain stereotypes of male teenagers to me because I show long hair. I could be considered many different things, including rebellious, troubled, angry, arrogant, or any other sort of stereotype out there. How could anyone possibly claim to know all of these false accusations simply based on my age and my gender and my hair? And then he goes on. At times it can be bothersome when people take certain precautions around teenagers because they believe we are all reckless and dangerous. Parents will cross to the opposite side of the street with their kids. People clear sidewalks when walking. Other drivers tense up on the road. And all while this is happening, other people will keep one eye carefully watching just to make sure that all of the rotten teenagers don't do anything dangerous. I sometimes think that people see me and other teenagers as giant, shiny explosives that are about to detonate, so everyone else needs to distance themselves as much and as quickly as possible. Just because a teenager happens to be walking around outside, that should in no way trigger a response where people feel that it isn't safe to be near them. Why does society take in all these stereotypes and live all of their lives believing false statements? It's a pretty potent quote from a young man. We need to change our perspective. It's the forest and the trees phenomenon. Every intimidating group of teenagers is made up of individuals who have their own personalities, hearts, and needs. And they're only intimidating until you get to know them. Ask God to change your perspective and to give you love for individual young people who need to be loved. Sharon Galgate Ketchum is a professor of theology and Christian ministries at Gordon College. She goes even further with this idea of changing our perspective. She says, there is a well-known narrative shaping our perception of teens. The narrative is as old as the socially created category teenager that emerged in the 1900s. We hear it daily in the media, in helicopter parenting, and even in our approaches to youth ministry. The idea that teenagers are broken, deficient, and in need of help. We problematize teenagers and use significant resources to try and fix them. This narrative evokes fear, and in loving response, parents are desperate to keep them safe. I'm not saying we live in a danger-free world. Of course there are real dangers. What I am saying is that teenagers are more than problems to solve. They have potential as human beings, and surely God sees their potential in Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit. Helping teenagers imagine how they might contribute to God's redemptive movement in the world will unveil their potential. When parents, youth pastors, and church leaders train their eyes to look beyond the dominant problem narrative to recognize teenage potential and provide a place in the church for teenagers to practice using their gifts, 
teenagers will find a meaningful purpose in the church. The busyness of teens is connected to the longing of adults to help problemized teens make it into adulthood. Imagine if we saw teenagers as Christ does, she says, full of potential to join God's purpose. The third letter, P, is patience. Chap Clark, the author of When Kids Hurt, writes, The process of helping an adolescent develop a consistent faith takes time and patience from loving and caring adults in the Christian community. Faith is a long, complex journey, and adolescents need someone who will walk alongside them as long as it takes. We need to have patience with youth. They're not yet fully developed adults. Can we be patient with them while they get there? Paul follows his description of the unity of the church as the body in 1 Corinthians 12 with his great hymn of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Can we ask God to pour his love into our hearts so that we can be patient with young people as they go through what many people consider to be the hardest years of life? And then the fourth P is perseverance. Similarly to having patience, we need to persevere in caring for youth. Adolescence is the most self-centered period of a person's development. It's not the fault of youth. You know, you were self-centered teenagers once too. It's not their fault. It's how we all develop. But it makes it draining at times to care for them, whether as their parents, their grandparents, their youth leaders, their teachers, I remember well how I felt one time while on a a retreat with some youth. It was about 2 a.m., and I was exhausted. And they, in their youthfulness and their self-centeredness, would not settle down and be quiet so that some of us could get some sleep. I went to the bathroom, and as I was washing my hands, I looked in the mirror with tears in my eyes and out loud said, I can't do this anymore, Lord. They're so selfish. And God had a brief answer for me. Yes, you can. As God gives you strength and love and wisdom in your dealings with young people, persevere. When you want to give up, persevere. The moments of struggle are a drop in the bucket compared to the joy of a relationship with them. Persevere. And those of you who aren't in relationship with young people, perhaps you know others who are. They may need you to help hold them up. Think for a minute of Aaron and her in Exodus 17, holding up the hands of Moses when he became so tired and could no longer hold them up himself. We can help one another to persevere in loving young people. And the fifth P is priorities. Our priority should always be, always be the hearts of people. Anything in the building can be fixed or replaced. Their hearts cannot. Church, did you hear me about that? Anything in this building can be fixed or replaced, but their hearts cannot. That doesn't mean that we look the other way when a teen purposely does something destructive I can't begin to tell you how mad I was a few years ago when someone took a pin and punched holes in the lobby wall to write an expletive on a Wednesday night. But most of the damage that may be caused by youth is really the result of them horsing around 
and is quite accidental. Drywall patch and a bit of paint do wonders for patching up a hole in a wall. What patches up the heart of a young person who's turned off from the church? And then the sixth P is the word presence. I know how deeply affected my own life was by the presence of loving adults who cared for me through my teenage years. When I look back, I was an awful teenager. My sisters and I fought with each other all the time. I'm sure when we came to church, those people said, oh, here they come again. But the profound influence of some of these adults helped to shape my beliefs, my values, my behaviors. Perhaps you can think of people in your life whose presence in your teen years made all the difference. Could God use your presence in a similar way in a young person's life? David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group, which provides research and resources that facilitate spiritual transformation in people's lives. And he was writing about the state of youth ministry, and he said, still the maturation years are ripe with spiritual possibilities. Helping youth connect with God, learning about their faith, and serve others in a loving and relational environment are, the top, are their top desires from a church. Keep in mind that young people are not spiritually transformed merely by attending a church, knowing a few Bible stories, or being friends with the youth pastor, he said. It takes addressing teens on a much deeper level, on a much deeper personal level, such as developing their intellect and vocational passions, as well as cultivating their curiosity for the complexities of life. Being present in the life of a young person can be something as simple as sharing a meal together. What teen do you know who doesn't love to eat? I'll never forget a student. His name was Danny Shea. He was in high school when I was the youth pastor at Carlisle Brethren in Christ Church more than 30 years ago. Danny didn't really like coming to youth group. He didn't really like the setting, the big group of kids. He stayed away. One day I had asked him if he would come to dinner at our apartment, and I'll never forget his response. He said, you want me to come to dinner at your house? It was almost inconceivable to him that we'd want to spend time with him. He accepted our invitation and came and had a wonderful evening with Craig and me. I ran into his mother a couple of years ago at a funeral service at Carlisle Church, and she recounted how much our reaching out and spending time with Danny meant to him. 30 years later, it was still remembered. A three-phase experiment was conducted at Rockford College using over 100 college students. And this experiment illustrates the ministry of presence. Picture a room with 100 college students sitting in it. And the experimenter wrote, in the first phase, we took a volunteer from the room and blindfolded him. We simply told him that when he returned, he could do anything he wished. He remained outside the room while we instructed each audience member to think of a simple task for the volunteer to do. When the volunteer returned, they were to shout their individual instructions at him from where they sat. Imagine a room of 100 people shouting an instruction at you. 
Prior to this, we privately instructed another person to shout a very specific task at the blindfolded volunteer, as though it were a matter of life and death. This person was to attempt to persuade the blindfolded volunteer to climb the steps at the back of the auditorium and embrace an instructor who was standing at the door. He had to shout this vital message from where he sat in the audience. The blindfolded volunteer was oblivious to all instructions and previous arrangements. The volunteer represented our young people. The audience represented the world of voices screaming for their attention, and the person with the vital message represented those of us who bring the message of the gospel to youth. The blindfolded student was led back into the room. The lecture room exploded in a din of shouting. Each person tried to get the volunteer to follow his or her unique instructions. In the midst of the crowd, the voice of the person with the vital message was lost. No single message stood out. The blindfolded student stood paralyzed by confusion and indecision. He moved randomly and without purpose as he sought to discern a clear and unmistakable voice in the crowd. In the second phase of the experiment, we told the audience about the person attempting to get the volunteer to accomplish the vital task. At this point, we chose another person from the audience to add a new dimension. This person's goal was to, at all costs, keep the volunteer from doing the vital task. While the rest of the audience was to remain in their seats, these two people were allowed to stand next to the volunteer and shout their opposing messages. They could get as close as they wished. However, they were not allowed to touch the volunteer. As the blindfolded volunteer was led back into the room, the shouting began again. This time, because the two messengers were standing so close, the volunteer could hear both messages. But because the messages were opposed to each other, he vacillated. He followed one for a bit, then was convinced by the other to go the opposite direction. In order for young people to hear our message, we must get close to them. Even then, there are others with opposing messages who are also close enough to make their messages clear. The main lesson, only, those, only the close voices could be heard. Even though the volunteer took no decisive action, at least he heard the message. And the response to the third phase was startling. In this phase, everything remained the same except the one with the vital message was allowed to touch the volunteer. He could not pull, push, or in any way force the volunteer to do his bidding, but he could touch him and in that way encourage him to follow. The blindfolded volunteer was led into the room. When he appeared, the silence erupted into an ear-splitting roar. The two messengers stood close, shouting their opposing words. Then the one with the vital message put his arm gently around the volunteer's shoulder and leaned very close to speak directly into his ear. Almost without hesitation, the volunteer began to yield to his instruction. Occasionally, he paused to listen as the opposition frantically tried to convince him to turn around. But then, by the gentle guidance of touch, the one with the vital message led him on. A moment of frightening realism occurred spontaneously as the one with the vital message drew close to the goal. All those in the audience who up to this point had been shouting their own individual instruction suddenly joined in unison to keep the volunteer from taking those final steps. 
Goosebumps appeared all over my body as students began to chant together, Don't go! Don't go! Don't go! So many times I've seen the forces that pull our youth in different directions join together to dissuade them from a serious commitment to Christ. The chant grew to a pulsing crescendo, Don't go! Don't go! But the guiding arm of the one with the vital message never left the volunteer's shoulder. At the top of the stairs in the back of the lecture hall, the one with the vital message leaned one last time to whisper in the ear of the volunteer. There was a moment of hesitation, then the volunteer threw his arms around the instructor, and the audience erupted in cheers and applause. When the volunteer revealed how he felt as he went through each phase, it became apparent that if our message is to be heard, we cannot shout it from the cavernous confines of our church buildings. We must venture out and draw close to those with whom we wish to communicate. If we really seek a life-changing commitment from our young people, we also must reach out where they are and in love gently touch them and lead them to that commitment. We asked the volunteer why he followed the one with the vital message, the one who touched him, and after a few moments he said, because it felt like he was the only one who really cared because it felt like he was the only one who really cared. Prayer, perspective, patience, perseverance, priority, and presence. Youth ministry isn't for the faithful few. It's for all the church. As we pray, as we change our perspective, as we show patience, as we persevere, as we choose right priorities, and as we find ways to be present in the lives of young people, God will bless us with relationships with one another, opportunities to care for one another, and with spiritual fruit. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member, both young and old, belongs to all the others. Lord, we thank you for giving us the body to be part of, calling us to be part of it, and giving us relationships with people of various ages. Lord, help us to live out um, your love uh, better with one another, to really be your body and to to show um, the love for, for us that you have. God, we ask you to do that in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This time, uh, I think uh, Randy and Marilyn are coming to lead us in our closing.